everyone, welcome to Poetry Says, I'm Alice. If I asked you to write a poetic biography of your favourite historical figure, how would you go about doing that? How would you decide what to research and what to include and what not to include? Well, these are the questions that my interviewee today, Jess Wilkinson, has been grappling with for quite a few years now. She's written two poetic biographies, one of them on Marion Davies, who was the lover of William Randolph Hearst, and the next one on Percy Granger, the Melbourne-born composer. And at the moment, she's working her way through a third poetic biography on George Balanchine, who was a Russian choreographer who ended up co-founding the New York City Ballet. So we talk a lot about this question of how you go about writing a poetic biography as opposed to a straightforward biography. And through it all, we're talking about the poet Susan Howe, who's from the US and who's done her own poetic biography projects throughout the years. I have such huge respect for Jess's work, not only as an author, but also as the founder of an amazing journal called Rabbit. And Rabbit's coming up on its 20th issue now, and it's all built around this idea of the non-fiction poem. And as we get into a little bit towards the end, that definition is a little bit more flexible than you might think at first. So here we are in Jess's office at RMIT, and I hope you get a lot out of this chat. I certainly did. So obviously you've written two poetic biographies. Yes. Marion Davies and Percy mm -hmm. Granger. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether there are non-poetic and more sort of straightforward biographies that you have read that you thought oh this is really great I'm really getting a lot out of this uh that's a really interesting question and it's actually something that um I'm investigating more and more I think when I first became interested in this idea of poetic biography and what that could offer to the writing of the life I was more influenced by poets um, in particular, Susan Howe, um, who I wrote my um, critical half of my PhD on, um, and her works are amazing, and I think we'll probably get to that later. Yeah, I definitely. Have a feeling yeah. that you're going to ask me about. We're going to dive into Howe. that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I, what drew me to the idea of um, writing poetic biography, which I guess is a contestable term, um, as well. Uh, is that um, writers like Howe were uh, trying to find a new kind of language, a new kind of form, a new sort of space for representing figures that had been written out of history, figures that uh, you couldn't necessarily locate um, or locate adequately in historical archives um, or, you know, sanctioned archives, university spaces, um, history books and so on um, quite often they were women's voices um, so I really loved that idea that she was trying to um, trying to find a, a new kind of biographical medium I guess to represent those voices that is that um, that idea that she identified that if these voices have been written out of traditional um, historical modes then you need to find another space uh, another way to represent those voices mm -hmm. um, because simply writing those voices back into traditional historical narratives um, I got the sense that Howe thought that that was doing those voices a bit of a disservice so um, yeah it, it was a few years I suppose of um, kind of dabbling in those ideas myself that um, that I started to turn to um, more conventional um, straightforward you know prose standard kind of chronological biographies um, that you might see in um, the biography section of a bookshop or whatever um, and uh, you know thinking to myself I guess what is it exactly that I'm moving against yeah um, so of course in writing about Marion Davies and in writing about Percy Granger and writing about George Balanchine for my third book um, I have read a lot of biographies on those um, particular figures. I mean, for Percy Granger, there's lots of 
um, biographical or kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of t typical kind of remembrances and popular books. Um, and for George Balanchine, there's even more. I've actually got a pile just behind me of other oh, yeah. books. That's a substantial um, pile. <laughs> yeah. And that's, a, that's, you know, that's probably only a very small percentage of books on Balanchine um, yeah. in that pile to read. So, so I think, um, but, you know, also I've been investigating beyond the characters that I'm interested in, thinking about what's going on in standard biographies. So to get back to your question, that's a really <laughs> long way to respond. No, that's fine. That's great. But I think that... Um, that I, I like I love the information that I get from a sort of more typical biography mm. I love um, I love what narrative offers I love the sort of almost simplicity of that narrative um, and the ease with which I can kind of absorb that information um, but I also get very bored mm -hmm. uh, by the form particularly because they're is um, you know most biographies I suppose um, or at least all biographies will eventually be about figures who are dead mm -hmm. um, and so if there's this narrative that in, it encapsulates the whole um, the life of a of a um, of a character then there's often you know they might um, begin formulaically with the with the death scene um, or with the birth scene um, you know, there's there's lots of predictable details that are often linked to chronology and yeah. a timeline, um, and and biographies frequently kind of perform that that timeline. Um, you know, there's lots of things that I think are kind of assumed about biography and what we need to get from biography. Um, yeah, so so um, all the important events and details of a character. Um, you know, even just little juicy details or affairs that the character had um, you find out about their parents you find out about um, their siblings their friends their you know and and of course with with Freud and psychoanalysis it, it um, created an even you know a very standardized form of um, childhood being influential on their later lives and so yeah, on yeah 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 so yeah. you know person X was born in Detroit and grew up in a very you know downtrodden yep. suburb and yep. so was always striving against that in later life yeah. that kind of yeah, thing yeah, yeah 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 and yeah maybe turn to charities or something as yep. a you know because they were influenced by or influenced by trauma of their childhood and so on and so mm -hmm. forth so um the thing about biography um and I don't hate traditional biography the thing that I the thing that I uh push up against I guess or what Kind of slightly irritates me about it is that a biography on Marion Davies and a biography on Percy Granger and a biography on George Balanchine um, formally to me um, are basically the same book yeah because mm. um, because that each each book is kind of written to a template uh, and um, so so yeah I, I I'm interested in interrogating that template and thinking about um, if we change that um, template or that foundation, um, can that tell us other details about um, a historical figure? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I do like reading biographies mm. for the, that situation of reading ease that they create, but... Um, but I also get annoyed by them. <laughs> yeah, it's ease at the expense of a lot of things, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, there's a fantastic essay that you wrote uh, in Axon called Beyond Facts and Accuracies um, that I really, really enjoyed reading. And in that you kind of outline this, I guess it's more of a sliding scale or a dichotomy, but the, on the one end you've got the chronological, the linear, coherent, true, quote-unquote, life of someone. And then the other end you've got what someone like Howe gets us to do, which is um, there, there's like flashes and hints and um, suggestions, which all kind of makes room for questions and it kind of, it's a more productive rather mm. than reductive, I guess yeah. is how I came up with thinking yeah, about it. Yeah. And it, it makes me think actually of um, uh, a couple of months ago, there's heaps of Kurt Cobain documentaries on Netflix doing the rounds. Yeah, right. And I don't know why. why. Is it his 
oh. anniversary or something. Oh yeah, maybe it was the anniversary of his yeah. death or something. Um, but it was just it's such a like you know the story that everyone knows and everyone's got mm. an opinion on because mm. I guess the central question being how far did Courtney push him towards committing suicide mm. and people are like at various points along that scale and so in the telling of these stories there's one documentary that's like you know very reverent and Kurt Cobain was amazing and Courtney Love was horrible and then there's more like the Kurt and Courtney story you know kind yeah. of them together and yeah I guess that's the just true one love example. Story, yeah. yeah the true love story yeah I actually saw, um, I saw when that, there was one that came out, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it was a couple of years ago, I think, and um, I was in Boston, and uh, it's interesting being in America because television programs just run on repeat all the time, and so, yeah, and, and it was running on repeat, and I actually started to like, um, I started to like their... What was the band again? That's terrible. <laughs> Nirvana. Nirvana. <laughs> I actually started to like the music because, yeah. see, I was my sister was into Nirvana, but I was a little bit too young or yeah. and nerdy as well. Yeah. So I wasn't kind of really cool enough to like Nirvana, but just the repetition of it made me kind of like um, and become interested in his story. And I think that's that's very interesting that I. Um, I kind of was drawn to his story and his life narrative just because of the way that um, the documentary had constructed it. Mm. Like I was very interested in that, um, yeah, the, the different kind of mechanisms and techniques that the director um, and, you know, whoever else was involved had kind of used to draw his story forth, um, you know, rather than the life itself because, you know, it, it does kind of dwell in misery and I think... Um, as with you know Amy Winehouse and that documentary on her life yeah, and yeah um and you know there's a new film out about Jackie Kennedy and yes um yeah. just just that that you know um I think we're kind of drawn to 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 the details of trauma um yeah but I'm yeah interested in those mechanisms of telling I mm. guess telling a story yeah, because with all those, I'm, I haven't seen the new Jackie movie, but the, the Amy documentary as well, there are so many questions about Amy Winehouse's life that that documentary skirts and dodges, you mm. know, kind of smooths over a lot of weird stuff with her dad, yeah. you know, and so the mechanism, I guess... Um, I kind of liked that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting, and, yeah. and I guess it is doing a little bit of what House talking about, it's getting you to think, getting you to ask mm. questions... Mm. Um, I really yeah. felt like that documentary was saying her father was an asshole. He was yeah. he was terrible, but they didn't kind of really come out and say that. The camera or the footage that they used was just very uh, suggestive. He I was, guess. yeah. Um, but then you know she she loved him as well. I guess the difficulty too is he's still alive. He's definitely going to watch it mm. and have a lot to say. So there's that angle too. Mm. Mm. Um, so to come to Howe then, Susan Howe, um, there's a really great, great quote that you put in Beyond Facts and Accuracies from her, which says, if you are a woman, archives hold perpetual ironies because the gaps and silences are where you find yourself. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in your first encounters with Howe because she's not mm. the easiest no. of poets and, and how we, we walked through that with someone or did you open a book and go oh my god this is amazing or yeah um it was strange um my first encounter with how I was doing my PhD I was sort of interested in the language poets but there was something quite cold I think about the language poets that that didn't um I don't know I I, I felt a bit lost mm -hmm. I think um it's like I I was really interested in their experimentation and um yeah kind of group sort of I don't know what it was Marxist effort or something but um I uh was reading a um an anthology of language poetry and Susan Howe was in there and something drew me to her um I can't really remember what it was but I I liked her work and so I investigated it and 
after that I sort of felt like she was perhaps wrongly included in that anthology because I don't know if I would classify her as a strict language poet. Uh, other people have written articles on this actually um, that she was perhaps just a little bit ahead of that generation and um, that there is um, well certainly for me I, I get uh, much more kind of depth of feeling for, for one thing um, from her work than I do from a lot of other language um, poets particularly the male poets um, mm. leaves me quite cold but like a Ron Silliman or not quite yeah. him but um, yeah, yes, yeah. well, yeah, like mm. all, like all of those men, I, I just, um, I don't know. There's a kind of, uh, sort of willful arrogance about it that just annoys me. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, I, I kind of also think, well, yeah, there's a place for that. That's fine, but it's not for me. So yeah. yeah. So anyway, I gravitated towards how. And what was the first work I encountered? I can't, I can't really remember. I, I um. I remember, I think the first book that I took out of the Bailey Library at the University of Melbourne was called The Nonconformist Memorial. And that has um, several long poems in it. Uh, one is The, the Nonconformist Memorial. There's um, a bibliography of the King's Book or Icon Basilica and Melville's Marginalia. And all of those are some of my favourites. Um, and they're also, yeah, very difficult to read. And I think um, you, you mentioned the other day in email that incident where uh, another student who was doing a PhD, a male student, like picked up that book on my desk and then threw it across the room and, I, and said, you know, this isn't poetry. Like, why are you writing your PhD on this? It's not poetry. Yeah, I was hoping you would tell that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, keep in uh, mind, this is a library book. It doesn't yeah. <laughs> even belong to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and that student wasn't a poet. Uh, so that's kind of um, also interesting. But, <laughs> but maybe I'll leave that alone. Um, yeah, so that was kind of like an act of violence that I really felt... Um, Maybe that kind of galvanised me in a sense as well because it seemed like some of the things that Howe was fighting against, um, you know, that sort of violence was enacted by this student against me, you know, as a sort of, um, I don't know, uh, I felt like I was being mentored by Howe in some way to, um, to justify a space for this kind of work. Um, and I guess, I, uh, you know, in writing poetic biography, um, I've certainly had people question what I'm doing and get annoyed at my work or um, show frustration or whatever, which I always find really interesting, particularly if those people um, who are so against it uh, are willing to engage in dialogue about it. Yeah, um, that's always really helpful. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, It's one thing to just throw a book across the room. Yeah. But if that person could have explained what it is about yep. this that doesn't strike him as poetry, then that would be a great starting point. Yeah, mm. and not just for him or for the you know um, the non-believers, but <laughs> for for me as well. Like I yeah. think that um, you know another thing with Rabbit as a journal for non-fiction poetry, and people say what's well, non-fiction poetry, and then you know we might have an argument, we might you know have um, some kind of yeah dialogue and uh, it's always beneficial for me as well to strengthen or think about the boundaries that surround such terms um, you know what's contestable um, mm. what's open for debate and you know all of that I, I find really useful yeah um, so what was the original question is about how and yeah. and and poetry um, uh, sorry yeah yeah the, yeah so this student saying this is not poetry um, and um, and it, it really kind of made me slow down, um, you know, because it's not a kind of lyric poetry. It's not something that you would encounter in high school um, and be able to pull apart really easily. You've got to 
sort of dwell in house poetry for some time. Um, so so you have to commit to it for one thing. Yeah. And um, I quite I quite liked that uh, this idea of um, of spending as much time with a poem as you would with a novel. Um, and so that that was kind of one thing. Um, another thing that I loved about Howe's work is that they're all really long poems. Yep. Um, so she's kind of constructing a sort of narrative, anti-narrative, <laughs> um, focusing on a subject and, um, and, yeah, bringing various things to light, whether that is a, um, a historical figure or, um, or an event or something. So, um, so that book that I mentioned, The Nonconformist Memorial, has one of my um, favourite pieces in it called Melville's Marginalia. And I read an article about that um, because, I, yeah, I was just, just really fascinated by the way that uh, it's called Melville's Marginalia. And Melville's Marginalia is this two-volume uh, set of... Um, compiled by this guy called Wilson Walker-Cohen, um, who for his own dissertation, he compiled all the markings made by Melville in the books that he owned and read. Wow. So it's um, a really cool document. Um, and uh, it has like a little, um, what do you call it, like a table at the beginning with what markings mean um, so there might be like a pointing finger or, you know, an asterisk or just a line. Anyway, so all the pages from books that Melville owned and read um, are reproduced in this. But it's really bizarre kind of thing. That sounds like an epic job, just yeah. at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how found those volumes when she was writing a lecture um, about Melville for a university class? and became interested in them and then when she was leafing through them she found um some pages that melville had obviously read um from james clarence mangan who was an irish poet and political activist and that brought back all these memories for how about her own irish past because her mother mary manning was irish a playwright um and so when you read Melville's Marginalia, it's kind of more about James Clarence Mangan than it is about Melville. You would assume that maybe she's writing about Melville, but it's more about Mangan. And Mangan was such a sort of obscure figure and he sort of um, will, willingly obscured himself as well. Um, so what the work does is sort of preserve his marginality preserve Mangan's marginality. This is very confusing. Right. It sounds very confusing. No, no, I get what you're saying. So yeah. rather than dragging him out into the light by kind of documenting everything yeah, yeah, in yeah. a really um, ruthless yeah. way, mm. she's, yeah, staying at the edges. Yeah, opens up all these sort of spaces and um, and she does that in so many different ways. Like, for example, she, um, she includes excerpts of, um, you know, fictional accounts of Mangan. She um, cuts and pastes things from other texts and, um, you know, there's kind of contradictions and, and bits of text kind of rubbing up against each other and, um, yeah, like the visual poetics as well. You kind of um, have to spend time with that, figuring out what she's, what she's doing or, um, yeah. So there's a lot that kind of eludes you and... Uh, and then you kind of realise if you spend enough time with it that that it's it's intentional. At least I think it's intentional. Yeah. That um, that in writing a kind of biographical text about James Clarence Mangan, she's acknowledging that you need to avoid all the techniques of uh, of conventional biography writing right. because it does Mangan a disservice. Like he 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 lived on the margins. So yeah. what is a marginal biography? I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just thought that that was so masterful and um, so mind-blowing when I was a PhD student. 
Um, and I thought, yeah, what, yeah, what could I do that is, um, is kind of similar to that or in, in that kind of vein. Another thing about how is that every text that she writes is different formally. So, um, another work that I love is called The Liberties, which is pr printed in the uh, book The Europe of Trusts. And that's kind of about, um, and I say about in, um, yeah. Inverted commas, yes. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's not really about something really in a straightforward way. But um, it's kind of about um, Hester Stella Johnson, the supposed secret lover of Jonathan Swift. Um, and because of his position in the in the church, um, their relationship was kind of hushed up and they... they I think they secretly got married. Um, I don't know if that's been confirmed. Um, anyway, so this work um, also is um, preserving her marginality, but in a, just a completely different way. I mean, there's even this poetic play in The Liberties um, where she has um, Stella engaging with Cordelia from King Lear right. and sort of bringing in these fictional, um, fictional characters to to see if that might be a way of, um, of bringing Stella to light because Stella, you know, very few extant traces of her exist in archives or anything. She's kind of obliterated from history. So, so yeah, this, like, if you have... For me, that made me think, okay, so if I write about Marion Davies, what's the appropriate container for her life? Um, and then if I write about Percy Granger being a completely different character I need a totally different container mm. so it was kind of how he made me um, think about that strongly mm. yeah that's really interesting because it's kind of like what you're saying at the start where you take a marginalized figure and then just try and fit them into the really straightforward biographical mold mm. so mm. if you write you know a straightforward bi biography of Esther Johnson you're not acknowledging really the fact that she was totally written out of history and you're not kind of spending any time with that at all. You're just like scraping together all the facts that you have and then putting it into this yeah this yep. mold. And um, yeah, so uh, how goes beyond speculation? I think as well. It's like the form takes you beyond speculation to all kinds of imaginative possibilities. So she pulls the reader in. Then, like she she pulls the reader into. Um, to be partially responsible for the recreation of that historical account mm. um, that in negotiating the text we can kind of make assumptions but that's on us as readers yeah guess, yeah you know. but it's again it's that you're doing the thinking you're actually mm. engaged um, there was this other quote that you wrote about Geordie Albertson who wrote a book called Botany Bay Document and the hanging of Jean Lee and you said about that the past cannot be recovered in full but can be felt through a more complex engagement with the truth. So rather yeah. than just, you're mm. telling me what happened to this person and I'm learning. Yep. You're kind of yep. given this smorgasbord of, of things and then you you do the work. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, which is, you know, which is not to say that you can get anything from a text um, and that as a reader that you, you kind of um, completely shape the character from that text it's more that I think how and what I try to do with my work is to provide a kind of framework or experience and within that there are there is some movement I guess almost like a like a, a, a theater script or something how it can give rise to innumerable sort of um, acted interpretations and, and with different characters one thing that's interesting, I guess, with this new book that I'm writing on George Balanchine, who um, was a ballet choreographer and he set up the New York City Ballet, um, was that he would choreograph um, ballets and uh, he would often um, choreograph them for very specific dancers. And then, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, if they'd be restaged, but they'd be different ballerinas, um, he would make adjustments to show off the best characteristics of those 
specific dancers. And I think um, that's just so, uh, so great. Like that idea of um, nothing is ever static, like a piece of art, um, you know, and that makes me think as a poetic biographer, how can I do that in my poetry? So if I write about Balanchine, about details of his life, if I write about those ballets, like how can I, rather than just writing about the simple steps or the, um, I don't know, the, the, the um, formation of dancers on stage or, you know, the, the emotion of the pas de deux or the music or whatever, like is there a way to think about what poetry um, or to, to kind of, um, I don't know, marry that idea of what poetry can do um, with Balanchine's philosophy, I guess, mm, yeah. of, um, of, you know, he's, yeah, he said all this, he has all these great quotes, um, and he often said about, you know, ballet that you, um, you know, first is, you know, it is there and then it is gone, <laughs> you know, this ephemeral nature of it. Mm. Um, and print, print is not ephemeral, like print is no. on the page, but I love, I love print and I love books, so... How can I um, create an experience for a reader of a print book um, that that can help them to appreciate what Balanchine was saying through the experience of the text rather than what's actually printed on the page? Yeah. yeah. It's really amazing to me looking at Marionette and poems from Sweet for Percy and now hearing you talk about this new project. Like you ask yourself some really hard questions you set yourself really like amazing projects and um it's not as if you're just setting out to write the next kind of you know highly awarded collection of of beautiful poems about australia and suburbia and things like that <laughs> much much as we love those um you know you're just like no 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 i'm i'm gonna go over here and do this and then the other amazing thing about these projects is like I, I feel like there must be so much faith involved like I know when I when I write one poem like 16 bloody lines or whatever mm. I'll lose faith in it like after a couple of weeks but you're sitting with these people for years yeah. like Percy was six years Marionette yeah. must have been longer t than that even Percy, was, se Percy seven. was seven years yeah. Marionette was about uh, five or six Right. Yes, maybe even seven as well. Yeah. Maybe seven is my thing. Yeah, right. I mean, I can't believe that I did uh, re my research trip for the Balanchine work. And I love archives. Like, that's a huge part of my projects as well, is to go to, to archives. And, you know, archives are, are fantastic, but also very troubling, um, being, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, you stuff's know. falling apart, you can't find things, it's but all also, in a dusty vault. Yeah, but yeah. also they're, they're these places of kind of immense control mm. and um, and surveillance. And, you have to sign um, in and... Yeah, 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 but also you know that there's there's stuff that universities might think um, yeah, they're often held in universities or public libraries, but there are often things that are just, you know, not purchased for inclusion in an archive because they're considered not worthy. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah even that like that that kind of control and policing and control of knowledge as mm. well is um you often need a letter of recommendation or introduction in order to enter some of the really um you know um inc like some of the most um amazing collections of things yeah um yeah. are held and um sort of under careful watch um but yeah, maybe yeah, we can talk about that later because I can go on endless, endlessly about like archival <laughs> well, sort of experiences. Yeah, I, I know what you mean because I, I love archival work as well. And I've also worked on the other side of it, being the person who deals with the material in a library. Mm. Mm. And mm. so I, I know really um, intimately how kind of arbitrary and mm. unthinking the decisions can be around collection mm. and preservation and things like that. And sometimes it's just like... Mm. yeah people just run out of um again run out of patience with yeah. stuff and then it just gets chucked but yeah yeah but i was i was interested in like so percy and, and also um george balanchine it sounds like there's a wealth of material to work through 
And I was interested in asking you what the balance is between um, calculation in bringing stuff in and mm. intuition. Like yeah. that's got to be in the book. I don't yeah. know why it just has to. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I, I just realized I didn't kind of, I went off on an archive tangent. Um, and I did, yeah. When I was talking about time. So time really, yeah, is a, is a huge kind of factor and it, it cannot be rushed, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I, so I can't, um, I can't say to my publisher, I'll have this done by the end of the year. It just doesn't happen like that and I can't I can't work like that either um I'm a really slow poet um and and part of me also really just avoids writing poetry as long as possible um and um I find it really painful to to write the poems yeah. as well, well so it's, it's horrible because like... you got to see like <laughs> the thing that was in your head has to go onto the page yeah. That's, that is painful yep yep so I kind of throw myself into this, into research, um, as you mentioned, and yeah, so, um, so yeah, but the difference between what was available for Marion Davies, which, you know, there's, um, you know, a lot, there's a lot, but it kind of, it wasn't the right kind of stuff that I wanted to find at that time. So when I was researching Marion's life um, I found lots of conflicting facts I found yeah lots of um, obscuring of things because of her because of her connection to William Randolph Hearst um, and that his, his reputation needed to be protected because he was so um, so sort of um, you know a public figure of importance and also had this um this control over media um so that had an effect on what was represented uh about marion um but also you know she kind of didn't have any uh acknowledged offspring so she she supposedly had a child with hearst um and um, patricia lake is buried next to her in the vault in the hollywood forever cemetery um but it wasn't acknowledged that she was their child until both Marion and Patricia had died. Um, and Patricia was raised by Marion's sister. And so just that these massive things can kind of be covered up and, and kept secret. Mm. Um, and mm. another thing was, you know, the Oneida incident when um, Thomas Ince died on board the yacht when they were all having a party. And, like, people still don't know what exactly happened. They think that Hearst shot him out of jealousy um, and you know, just all these kinds of little wow. secrets, lies, and whatever, which yeah. goes on in Hollywood now too, I guess. And even you know, people like Trump. Like, if you've got lots of power, you can control what people know about you and your family. Um, yeah, yeah. And so through through all that obscurity, like it was, it was just Marionette. I wanted to um, have a space where I was just opening up some of those lies and obscurities and. Um, missing information and see if we can um, hear something different about Marion I suppose like to create a space where we can think you know what um, you know who was this character um, and with Percy and with um, George there's just so much um, material and you know not um, I guess even though there is a lot of information on both of those characters um, that seems very forthcoming and you know quote unquote truthful um, I did it did make me the encounter with um, researching Davis Davies did make me slow down a little and question the truthiness of truth yeah yeah <laughs> and to think that even if you're given a plethora of information even from you know Percy's own Percy's own mouth, Percy's own pen, he wrote so much stuff, he documented so much stuff about his personal life, um, took, you know, lots of photos even of him naked and with his partner and, you know, self-flagellating and all this sort of stuff. So this kind of illusion of truth and, like, complete honesty. But um, 
Alla, his his wife, once said to Percy, "Percy, you're writing museum letters." Like he was uh, writing letters. He knew to someone people. was going to come and knowing, sign in and read yeah, it, <laughs> and knowing that he would archive them yeah. as well, because he had sort of archive mania and set up the Granger Museum, of course. So, um, so to yeah, like to what? Yeah, it made me think about how I would if I was to write a poetic autobiography, like what, how would I represent myself? Mm. Um, even writing emails, I wrote an email to a poet yesterday and it kind of struck me that I was using very particular language to talk to that poet. Um, and you know, it was definitely a, a different kind of persona, um, that I was sort of putting on and yeah, anyway, so, so I guess with, um, with Granger and George, despite the wealth of material, it doesn't necessarily mean I can access that character any more than I can Marion Davies. Yeah, it's almost obscurity through that huge mm. volume of stuff. Yeah. And, um, the, and the question is more, where do I find that character? Oh, sorry. The, the question is more, um, rather than, than, you know, how do, how do I find that character because there's, I can't find the right information... Instead, it becomes, um, you know, what do I, what do I put in, or, or, um, you know, how how can I possibly um, use all this information, or you know, like how how can I build um, a character, um, a, or how can I contain that character? I guess when there's just stuff flying at me from every corner yeah 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 they, they um, kind of get out of your control in another way yeah 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 so another thing that I'm really into uh as a, a scholar of these ideas is this idea of the poet or the biographer as um a really significant perhaps underappreciated figure in the writing of biography so when we think about a biography of, say, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin or a biography of Donald Trump, <laughs> we think that, um, at least I, you know, I think people generally read those things and they don't see the biographer at all. No, they, that's a good biography is one that you've, you're way behind the curtain as a biographer. Yep, yeah. yep. Um, and, and there's this... Uh, sense of or an illusion of um objectivity and impartiality and um you know you might be a master craftsman of telling the narrative in an interesting way like framing those facts in a really interesting way but generally um generally the the, the biographer is pushed to the background um in a poetic biography the poet is much more visible so Susan Howe is much more visible um, Geordie Alberston is much more visible uh, Dennis Cooley is much more visible Michael Ondaatje is much more visible um, and it's uh, both through the, the form of the work, like the presentation of the work um, so if you pick up Geordie Alberston's books um even though each one is different you can she's got quite a recognizable style so through the style of the work we see her poet's eye um and then frequently in poetic biography as well the poet will there's this strange phenomenon i guess where the poet will insert themselves into the biography so in um dennis cooley's bloody jack which is a, a kind of poetic biography on a um outlaw called um Jack Kravchenko, he, um, he, there's a, a sort of poem letter um, where he, he specifically um, refers to himself. Um, in Susan Howe's The Liberties, towards the end of it, there are all these word games and strange things that, you know, oh, yeah. um, and she has all these clues, and the answers to the clues spell out the letters of her own name. Um, in and then in Marionette and um, Granger I have those things too um, in Granger I was getting really frustrated one day and my neighbour's dog was barking and the 
neighbor kept calling out its name and being really loud and I wrote a poem um, about that and then I just kind of put it in there yeah um, and in marionette I'm often kind of talking to Marion so yeah there's, there's kind of um, multiple ways that the poet sort of almost brings themselves brings that poet's writing eye to the foreground yeah, yeah. Um, and um, you know that just thinking about that makes you reflect on traditional biography and you realize that actually the biographer is still very much there it's just um, there's just a veil over yeah the it's biographer. much smoother and oh, you can't see any of those rough edges yep yep and how they've, they've constructed it I'm really interested in um, kind of, I guess, what we're talking about here is the different personas that we have. You were mentioning with the writing of the email and then mm-hmm. Percy's writing his um, museum letters and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess to get, you know, into the whole Buddhism thing, there is obviously that idea of, like, there is no you, there's no self, you know, this is all just, you just made up of these parts that are coming together at certain moments. But... Um, I was actually really interested in a, in a sense of craft and putting things together, how you switch between these personas in your own life. You've got the academic persona, you're the editor of Rabbit, you're a poet yourself, an archivist or researcher in archives, and, you know, just a person in the world with a social life and stuff to do. Um, and, like, do you find that it's fairly... Like, are you dragging yourself from one persona to the other? Or is it, like, a comfortable kind of switching from one um, to the other? I'm very undisciplined. And so I think I'm quite thankful for having uh, an academic position because um, because otherwise I think I'd just be a total free-floating entity, not really accomplishing anything. <laughs> like, I need some <laughs> order. I need deadlines. I have a very short attention span. That can't possibly be true. No, I do. I really do. Like, I honestly do. Um, and I've reconciled myself to that, okay. that fact. Okay. But, um, so, so I do, yeah, I do have a very um, short attention span. And so I need to, um, I need to work with that. Yeah. I think with an academic lifestyle, you, um, you have a lot of, at least these days, you have a lot of administrative responsibilities and um, in many ways, I guess, rabbit is, uh, there's quite a high percentage of administrative responsibility involved in that as well. Mm. Um, handling emails, sending out journals, getting, you know, dealing with printers, um, dealing with poets, paying poets, um, even doing pr- proofs and things like that. You know, there's, there's a kind of strict timeline around that and um, it's quite easy to compartmentalise those things in a, in a set sort of time um, whereas writing poetry is just completely different. I think even writing scholarly essays is quite um, a lot easier for me because um, there's a much more sort of set format. But being creative is much more difficult for me and my mind wanders and I um, get distracted and go and watch TV or something. I just find, you know, any kind of excuse to just pull myself away from being creative. And, you know, maybe, oh, yeah, like, why is that? I don't really know. But maybe that's why I'm drawn to these extended projects on one character, because I can engage that part of me that responds really well to deadlines and um, set tasks, I guess. You know, if I'm writing about George, I read, like, a whole bunch of articles on <laughs> analysing George's ballets. Um, I read um, biographical texts. I read memoirs from by dancers. I watch ballets. I um, listen um, over and over to music. I, that's one thing I do um, quite a lot. Um, I listen to the music that he used for his ballets um and they're all quite um manageable individual tasks that then yeah eventually um give rise to creative works but it's really hard to say when or to predict when that creativity is going to 
um, eventuate, I guess, or produce poems. Um, with Granger, it was seven years, or it was about six and a half years of research, and then suddenly it just happened. Like mm. this, the the book kind of just happened. It's like I, I had enough. Um, I had enough material. Maybe I'd had enough of Percy, and it was that was it. And I bid him farewell. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I'm still waiting for that to happen with with George. Um, well. Mm. judging by the average timeline you've actually got quite a bit of time before yeah. that's due yeah, yeah. so yep yep yeah you asked something before actually and I kind of um you know went off on a typical tangent but you said how do I choose what to put in mm, mm-hmm. and um yeah and I mean I guess that links quite closely with that po- with the poet's eye that we all um all poetic biographers all biographers select material it's all a process of selection and exclusion. Um, it's just that I think in poetic biographies, uh, in the best poetic biographies, that that is brought to the forefront, that process. Um, so I um, don't get worried about what to include and what to exclude so much as... Um, I might set particular um, boundaries again, um, so maybe sections. Um, for writing the Granger work, I actually went to a tarot reader. Um, I had all these individual poems, and then I was with a friend on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, and it took a while for the bus to come back. So we went and got a tarot reading, and the tarot reader told me that um, that... Uh, I was struggling with a creative work and that she could see the five. So then I just split Granger into five sections that were themed. And that's and that um, that freed me up to finish the work, actually. So, yeah, right. you know, kind of bizarre. But, that's great. <laughs> and, um, and with Marionette, I had the constraint of the nine sections. And that was just because when I was in the archive, um, I went to this... Uh, kind of repair facility for really old film reels and um, the, there were a couple of films that I watched that way and um, each film was split up into like about nine reels so I had nine reels and I had you know different thematic sections according to that um, yeah so um, there was there was an encounter um, just to give you an idea of when I kind of feel like oh yeah okay this is this is definitely going to go in when I was in the um, Harvard's Balanchine archive collection I came across a letter from Stuart Manville who is the archivist at the Granger house in White Plains where Percy Granger lived for 40 years and um, it was a letter to George Balanchine I know right that's amazing it's like crazy um, and, and Stuart was saying, Percy had died, but Stuart had said, um, you know, dear George, dear Mr. Valentin, um, I, uh, wondered if you'd be interested in choreographing a dance to Percy's The Warriors. And Percy composed The Warriors, and I love The Warriors, it's just totally mad. Um, he composed that, uh, for a ballet. Um, but the choreographer, back when it was composed, pulled out of the project. So then Percy called it The Warriors' Music to an Imaginary Ballet. Oh. And so Stuart Manville wrote to George and said, would you like to choreograph it? And um, so there were all these letters back and forth, and then um, mostly because George wasn't responding. And then there was a letter saying that he didn't want to um, choreograph to that music. And, yeah, I can kind of understand it because it's quite a difficult piece. But um, so it forever remains like an imaginary ballet. It's imaginary. Wow. Um, So for me, uh, my involvement in the project and my role as biographer, um, well, not only as biographer, but someone who has a huge stake in the project, um, my poet's eye was very much present in that encounter yeah um thinking 
you know, this is this is a, a connection between those two characters made by me. Mm. So it, it's going to find its way into the project somehow. Um, but you know, readers will will know that that's because uh, this is my George Balanchine. Yeah, this is yeah. my Percy Granger. Yeah. Um, and that I can't divorce myself from the writing of those projects. Yeah. So yeah. It's an um, incredible story, like amazing coincidence. Yes, but connections. Yeah. Uh, Susan Howe says connections between unconnected things are the unreal reality of poetry. And um, when I was writing Granger, uh, I realised that Marion and Granger died in the same year. And so I have a poem in, um, in Sweet Percy Granger that is called 1961. Yeah. And it's about all of them. So it's kind of like this, these threads that we connect things and we think that they're meaningful mm. and we think, Oh, what a meaningful coincidence. And you know, um, that's the spooky and you know, like <laughs> it was meant to be and all this sort of stuff, but really it's just random shit that we kind of yeah. connect. And, and only we, you would have seen those yeah. connections. Yeah. yeah. So it's meaningful to me yeah. and it will be meaningful to the readers because they will encounter it in that space. But, um, but you know, it's another illusion, which I just think is kind of beautiful. But that's the beauty of poetry, I guess, is mm. that we, um, connections between unconnected things um, create an experience for us, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Before I let you go, I really wanted to ask you about starting up Rabbit, um, which is a poetry journal. Mm-hmm. And... I remember going to the launch of Rabbit issue four. Yeah. Right. And you said at that point, this is a really special launch because most journals don't get beyond issue three. It's like kind of a magic number where a lot of journals will kind of, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm for one. You got yeah. to make two. Oh my God, we're making three. Okay. That's when enough. You run out kind of money. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> run yeah. out of money. Um, I, I just, I think there's such a special culture around Rabbit. Mm. I love, I love seeing how it's changed. It's always been really interesting, but it's recently gotten very beautiful yeah. as well. It looks stunning. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a really fantastic culture of, um, for lack of a better word, experimental poetry, mm. or poetry that is more willing to go further is kind of mm. how I like to think about it. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I'm interested in whether that has been intentional on your part like the way that the culture around rabbit has built up is how much has that been like i want to make this and how much has it been kind of an organic process i suppose um that's really hard to answer i think um yeah um organic process like did you have an idea in your head at the start like this is what rabbit's going to be and it's always i'm just gonna go there start i think so when I started Rabbit, it was actually Michael Farrell who kick-started um, the, the, the idea of a publication because he was approached by Melbourne Uni, um, the library at Melbourne Uni. They'd just purchased a big machine that, um, you know, spits out books. Mm-hmm. And they approached Michael for, um, you know, some kind of anthology or something that might advertise the, the machine um, so that other people might make books through it. Um, and Michael was finishing his PhD and super busy, as Michael always is, and he just passed them on to me. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to do an anthology, but, um, but I thought, you know, maybe I'll start a journal. And so they, at the library, they very kindly said, okay, well, we'll do the first couple of issues and then you're going to have to figure out how to pay for it and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the first issue um, came out. It was an open issue and I'm still kind of very fond of that, um, that issue. Um, and then there was the second issue and that was themed food. And then after that, I started working... I'd started working at RMIT and there was the non-fiction lab um, was just starting up at um, RMIT um, that's a kind of research group um, that's just gotten bigger and bigger over the last five years 
Um, and we were talking about rabbit and how that fits in with the, the group. And I said, you know, why don't I, from issue three, make it a journal of non-fiction poetry? And they said to me, the, the directors, Francesca Rendell-Shaw and David Carlin, they said, oh, what's that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm sure I could figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably a bit shocking for people. They probably think, oh, that's a bit arbitrary. But, you know, aren't all decisions um, coming from arbitrary roots. Um, but, you know, I mean, it wasn't completely nonsensical because I'd already, um, you know, Marionette was almost published and Percy was certainly in the pipeline. And the more I thought about it, I thought, um, I felt very strongly about offering a kind of platform for other writers to engage in an area that I was already really into. So, um, so what can poetry do in the field of nonfiction writing? So not just poetic biography, which was my chief interest, but, um, you know, poetic geographies. And we had a geography issue, mm. which was number 17, um, you know, philosophy, um, what happens when you combine philosophy, non-fiction and poetry? What happens when you combine, what was one of the other issues? Well, there was a biography issue as well. There was a biography yeah, issue, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> the latest is prose and prose then poetry, yeah. the next one you'll do will be the Indigenous issue. Yep. So, yep. yeah, all really so, fascinating. So there are, there are constraints that it needs to be, um, that, that the poet more needs to um, kind of uh, offer their poem as a, as a non-fiction poem. So one of the most interesting things to come from Rabbit is that people um, will send in submissions and they'll often include a line or two about why they believe this is a non-fiction poem. And I think that's fascinating because it tells me that um, these very open-minded um, writers are thinking about the journal's um, constraint um, as a provocation and um, they're also thinking about, yeah, what poetry can do um, when they're writing about things that they consider to be, you know, in the real world um, or sort of non, yeah, non-fiction. Yeah. And what, um, what, the, what poetic lines can do um, that's different to, say, a, a sentence or a, a, a paragraph. Um, yeah. So, so that's really cool. Um, and also just the way that Rabbit looks as well. And um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like, it's interesting to look at the, um, the range of them on the bookshelf there yeah. and just how kind of far it's come um, to be uh, like a kind of collectible item. Definitely collectible, yeah. And, uh, you know, in this era where, you know, a lot of um, funding bodies and... Um, yeah like th there's a push for digital content because it's cheaper and um, I'm still a big believer in um, in the graspable book because I love reading in bed mm. and I love underlining things and I love bookshelves and I love collecting things as well yeah, yeah. there's nothing um, better than standing in front of like mm. I'm sitting here in front of your bookshelf and I could just stand here for hours going, oh, she's got this. This is amazing. You know, you, this is a kind of biography in a way. Yeah, like yeah. The books that are in your office. Well, all these books here, um, this pile here is, um, uh, they're all like poetic nonfiction. So they're all like poetic biography or poetic geographical texts and wow. stuff. So yeah. like I, um, yeah, I am a big believer in, internet downtime that that we it's kind of particularly with an academic job I guess I was you know I go crazy if I have too much um electricity kind mm. of charging through you know my surrounds and um and there's a lot of distraction on the internet as well so if, if I'm reading things online I find that there's too much distraction and temptation to check your email or, you know, read the news or, you know, and now things like Facebook, um, that it takes away from the kind of appreciation of, of art. And so 
yeah, it's very important to me that Rabbit um, continues to be print only. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's print only or nothing. And if that's what I believe, then I, I need to make it a collectible item for people so that so that they feel justified in in buying it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you've definitely definitely achieved that. What um, just as a final word, what do you as the editor of Rabbit want to see more of coming into the inbox to the poets out there <laughs> listening? What what excites yeah, right. you when you get it? Um Oh that's um I mean, I do, like, obviously, like, if you look at my own poetry, the, um, you know, I think, I guess a lot of people would categorise my work as avant-garde, um, and I love work that is experimenting and trying to do something new, um, but that's not all I like. Um, I kind of like work, any work, that is successful within its own framework, I guess. Um, so I just love it when a, a poet is kind of true to their own voice rather than um, attempting to, to be or to write something that's maybe in vogue. Um, you know, and there's a lot of that, I think, that there's, there's kind of like insincere experiments. So I just like... I like work where I can feel like there's a connection with the poet um, and and something new which doesn't necessarily mean experimental and and yeah mm. um, other than that I don't know it's just yeah like depending on the theme that I set for rabbit um, you know expectations sort of change yeah yeah I just the the one that's coming out soon which is the dance issue which is number 20. Um, I was a bit surprised that the the submissions for that um, were um, I just expected to get more um, visual play I guess like a kind of dance on the page or something um, and there are a few like that but not as many as I sort of expected so it's sort of hard to tell how people respond to a, a theme yeah, yeah without being too prescriptive and saying this is what you've got to send me so <laughs> get to work <laughs> <laughs>